I'm Gregory Shaw. I'm Isabel Faria. I'm Alexander Price, and you're listening to Practical Neoplatonism. Welcome to the first episode of our new podcast, Practical Neoplatonism. We're transitioning over from my previous show called Machine Elf Radio, where Gregory, Isabel, and I had a series of episodes where we started talking about Neoplatonism as a contemporary spiritual practice, and it was so fruitful and productive that we decided to keep going with it, and um, and so that's what we're doing. In this first episode, Greg and Isabel and I continue the conversation that we started previously on the Quora in Plato's Timaeus, and we center our discussion around a wonderful paper that Greg wrote titled The Quora of the Timaeus and Iamblichian Theurgy. As I've mentioned, the paper is available to read on his academia.edu profile. You can search for Gregory Shaw, Cora, C-H-O-R-A, and it should come right up. And we've also made plans uh, for our next episode. We're going to continue talking about the Cora, and we'll be reading a paper that Isabel wrote, um, and she is also uploading that paper to academia.edu. So so if you're following along and want to uh, read ahead our next episode, you know, it looks like we'll be uh, coming up with new one new episode about every month. And so uh, you have a little time to uh, to give it a read. And uh, her last name, if you want to look for it on, on, on academia.edu, is, is spelled F-A-R-I-A-S, Isabel Farias. And you should be able to find her there in her paper on the Timaeus. And uh, uh, if you want to come back and join us again next month when we continue this uh, wonderful conversation. Well, I was just looking through this article again, and I, you know, there's so much in it that um, I, I like it. And um, so there's all kinds of questions that it makes me still wonder about. And I'm wondering how you guys might engage those questions too. So. First, um, I would love to share with you in um, Tibetan Buddhism, one of the main, uh, you know, one of the very important Tibetan Buddhist uh, scriptures is the Lotus Sutra. Yeah. And uh, what you wrote about the Korra reminded me so much of, uh, I have like a, a super abbreviated version of the Lotus Sutra that's just a few lines, so I wanted to read it to you. And uh, yeah, I, was well, just, I was really well, struck how powerfully, how, how similar they are. So it says... Um, far-reaching, discriminating awareness, not what can be expounded, thought of, or uttered, is unbounded, unceasing, in essential nature-like space, the object experienced with individualizing, reflexive, deep awareness. I prostrate to you, O mother of the Buddhas of the past, present, and future. So, uh, it's it's like a prayer. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like a prayer to emptiness the mother of uh uh, of existence (laughs) oh that's a nice connection yeah um yeah it's beautiful i think there are parallels like that yeah well i mean and also given the importance of philosophy in tibetan buddhism i imagine there's a direct historical connection too between greek philosophy and tibetan buddhist philosophy i think it's something we've touched on a little bit before yeah, I I'm not sure that it, I could find the direct link. Yeah, or how it goes, but it could be. And I know that um, uh, that's one thing that Peter Kingsley mm-hmm. is interested in in providing evidence for the historical links. Right, that's uh, uh, the shape of ancient thought was the name of his book, I think. Uh, the shape of ancient thought was um, no, no, no. That's not Kingsley. That's, that's someone McKevely. else. That's McKevely. McKevely, right? Yeah. And and that's a very interesting book. I like it. Well, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit of a digression, but one of the uh, main uh, connections that I've seen in a lot of, uh, you know, contemporary mystical esoteric uh, belief systems groups is uh, uh, the idea of emanationism, yeah. which seems to be inherited from uh, Neoplatonism, and that's in Kabbalah. Oh, yeah. there's another something I have to talk about to you. You know... Um, the word Kabbalah uh, means yeah. means it, it like it's from a verb that means to receive, 
you know, oh, and, I didn't and, know that. and most most literally it means like the the received wisdom, you know, that's been yeah, passed right. down. But uh, but it also has an implication of just like a sort of receptiveness and openness um, oh, to to cool. to receiving from God, you know, which uh, which is something else that came up, you know, yeah. in your uh, it, in your article. Yeah, in fact, that's the the main focus in a sense, um, receptivity. Yeah. Uh, what other uh, Isabel? Were you going to say something, or had some issue that you wanted to engage? To, some place to start. Um. Yeah, I mean, what I one of the parts that I found very interesting, and I felt like you um, articulated a problem that I had seen before, but hadn't been able to articulate myself. Um, the part where you talk about how sort of um, post-structuralists, in this right. case, Derrida, um, right. are sort of battling this, um, like the house that was never built. Oh, maybe. right, right. I had fun with that line, yes. <laughs> but I thought that was a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really agree the, with it. You agree with that? Um, you know who really helped me a lot with that is the um, the scholar that I refer to. He has a really good book on quite, uh, Highland. His name is Highland, uh-huh. and, and it's a book called Questioning Platonism. Uh-huh. And he takes issue with those continental philosophers like Derrida, who have characterized Plato as a dualist, uh-huh. and then and then criticize the whole structure uh, for its dualism. Whereas Highland doesn't think that Plato is a dualist, and he thinks it's a false label, and therefore it's a straw man that mm-hmm. that Derrida is deconstructing. And I I think that he that I I buy it, that argument. I think that that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And so even though he deconstructs a house that Plato and Neoplatonists never built, we still live in a dualist house because I think that's kind of how it was received later, at least in Western theological traditions they sort of dualize plato you know there's a heavenly world up there and this world down here but i don't think that's what plato and the later platonists were after i think we kind of lost what they were doing because um in a way how do i put this it seems as if the christian appropriation of plato left some of the more subtle parts of it out that was my take on it um so you think it, it comes from the sort of neoplatonist Christian tradition that we get this uh, perceived notion of Plato as a dualist? And I think it's more Christian than Neoplatonist. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a lot of things in Plotinus that invite us to see Platonism as dualism. You know, he talks about the soul never comes down here and we need to fly from this world to the fatherland and all of that. That sounds very dualist. But Iamblichus completely disagreed with some of those uh, images, and Proclus did, and so Damascus did as well, and most of the other Platonists did, so that when Plotinus says the soul never comes down into a body, he admits that he's speaking against the tradition. But it, it captures the way that he's experiencing his exaltedness. He feels as if he never really came down, and yet what am I doing here? It's a very strange passage. Uh, sometimes when Plotinus talks about his being in a body, mm-hmm. he sort of is and he isn't, and they sort of decide, he opts for I'm not really in the body, which you, if you use Christian terminology, that's a sort of docetic version of the soul. That, there's that heresy of docetism that believes that Jesus isn't really incarnated, he just appears to be in a body. So it's a seeming incarnation, but it's not a real flesh and blood incarnation. And the church later said, no, no, that's that's a heresy. But in a way, that's the position that, that Plotinus lays out. Mm-hmm. And I also think that's the way that most Christians think of Jesus. He, he's not really human, like in a body like us. And they don't uh, ever really completely allow him to sink down into the flesh and... I think it tends to be dualist in its orientation. We've got to get somewhere else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you guys. What do these Platonists mean when they say that the gods desire to appear in human bodies, that they want to be uh, embodied as human? What does it mean to embody a god? 
um, and without it becoming complete hubris. Yeah, as Isabel um, pointed out, that's the downside of that statement. You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do. What I can say is that, like, uh, uh, it reminded me of Pythagoras and um, the you know, the idea that he was Apollo incarnate, you know, uh, to a degree that I think he actually even also dressed up in costumes, maybe the same way. It reminds me of there's a very famous bust of one of the Roman emperors dressed up as Heracles. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so those ideas are all associated in my mind of like the divine or semi-divine king who was uh, also at least, at least part God, if not a God incarnate, and and also uh, uh, this sort of mystical tradition, um, which seems to be associated in complicated ways with initiation, as a process of 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 incarnating or or you know, becoming is it becoming God or 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 uh, divine? Well, yeah. okay, that made me think if 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 the if the formula here for the later um, Platonists. Is that you become God by engaging or or enacting divine things mm-hmm. and divine activity? Mm-hmm. Then it makes makes me think of your tradition, Alex. Say on the mitzvah, if you take in, in the in the um, most maybe outrageous or or compelling image of the mitzvah on the Sabbath night, where the man of the house and the woman of the house have conjugal relations, sure. and and in the Lurianic kind of Kabbalistic system, it sort of represents the reunion of the divine unfallen and all of of the of um, everything that's fallen out of the vessels into this world, but they're reunited. The Shekinah is reunited with with um, the God in that in the imagery of the husband and the wife joining. Yeah. So in the ritual of of that in that mitzvah of them having conjugal relations, they are symbolically or allegorically reuniting the separated fragmented part of god with the unfragmented part of god and so in that sense they are vehicles for the divine itself um i wouldn't have necessarily thought of it in these terms because there is a very clear distinction i don't think judaism has any remote conception of humans becoming gods but um but there is with 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 that sort of uh um practice on Shabbos, you know, uh, there's an idea that there's a, there's a parallel between the, uh, you know, the heavenly world and the, and, and this world, and that through the union of husband and wife, like, uh, it's also, you know, involves certain meditation practices, but through their union, the union of, uh, you know, the, uh, God and and his Shekinah, you know, or yeah, uh, yeah. it happens also in in the in the divine world simultaneously, and that like yeah. repairing the world is repairing, you know that that uh, which which has some interesting um, you know overlaps with the with the, the relationship between this world and the world of forms, you know. Uh huh. And instead of thinking of that, you would become a god, like yeah. an objective god. It's it, the way I'm. I'm trying to imagine it more. Is that um, the divine activity is enacted through me? Mm-hmm, In mm-hmm. other words, that becoming God is not by becoming yes. God as a noun, but entering yes. into the to the activity of God. Yes, yes. The way well, and there's certainly, I think, a really obvious uh, connection there between the. Uh, uh, divine creation of reality and the uh, you know coming together of man and wife uh, in, in creating life. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, just a thought. Yeah. I just you know, it, it, and it's a challenging idea for me. That's one of them. Um, what is a challenging about, idea? Oh, well, the, the, what does it mean when they say that they that we could embody the gods? Yeah. You know? How did they imagine that? And. And it's easy for us to think, oh, did they just have this hubristic notion right. of getting up, you know, thinking that they were super, or yeah, yeah. is it something more subtle that was going on? Yeah. I have definitely interpreted the way you put it by the end of the paper as something yeah. more subtle and different from what we would expect of someone claiming to have become a god. Yeah. Right. right. And then, um, I think it's in page 120. Okay, let's see where that, maybe that's that's great, a solution to 
the puzzle. Okay, yeah, I see page 120. And in the, the quotes in the middle of the page that you have there. Yeah. Um, where you describe, well, the quote describes how all things have um, a receptacle of sorts. Yes, right. And then by sort of identifying all the separate little receptacles in differing objects and then yeah. put them all together, you get the perfect receptacle. Yeah, yeah, that's what he says. It's kind mm -hmm. of far out. Yeah, and then once you realize that, then you become the sort of the god or the demiurge who creates the world. Uh, only, by, only by making sure that you are not it, but receiving it. And somehow, <laughs> yeah, being a pure receptacle, a sort of, it's almost like a nullification of your assertiveness, that any shred of hubris couldn't be part of that or you wouldn't be receiving at least mm -hmm. that's one way for me to think about it. Mm. Well, and this was also the um, the passage where you point out the the meaning of the, the or, or cora used as a verb chorusai, mm -hmm. uh, and that was where yeah. I, I first made that connection between Kabbalah and uh, and what we're talking about here, the reception um, of, uh, the, of uh. the of the gods uh, in, in um, you know this passage. Well, I have to say that sometimes I will come up with these sort of uh, rich metaphors that make perfect sense, given what the material says, and I'll write it down, and I don't ultimately have a freaking clue as to how to oh. make sense of it, you know, but, but it feels right in, 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 in the presentation of it. For example, um, um, well... On page 114, um, if this Korah is in all of us because we're participating in this unfolding of reality, which is all through the womb of which is the Korah, that, that presence, that quality of Korah is in each of us. So if we can really sink into it, then we can identify with that nurse and mother of all realities and that somehow, by being like the Korah, we can join in the creation of the world uh -huh. and seeing it somehow as coming, flowing out of us. And I sometimes, you know, I can kind of get a glimmer of, of a feel for what that is. But then on the other, and sometimes I just, I feel like, what the fuck could that be? You know, I mean, um, I think that that's their idea, that somehow... It's sort of like the Buddhist notion of shunyata, yeah. the, the emptiness that that out, out of which everything that contains everything, that is everything, and yet is the emptiness. I think it's similar to that dynamic, which is why your initial reference to uh, the um, the Buddhist prayer yeah. made, made sense to me. I kind of resonate with that. I think it's similar to that. And I also love that you. I do think that. Um, you associate it with uh, you know the idea of the matrix as like matrix is in like the Latin root mother you know yes um, yes, yes. Uh, I think there's something there yeah and, and it's kind of interesting because Plato who's so rational and, and builds up this tremendous intellectual framework has at the very root of it this completely non-rational piece out of which everything comes into existence. You can't access it um, except through bastard reasoning, like in a dream. And, and so that means that unless we're able to engage that piece in some way, in a dreamlike way or whatever, then we won't really enter into the heart of, of, of what he's trying to convey. At least that's how I see it. Um, and at least that was my that was my intuition about this. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to maybe understand what you mean in that part in 114. Yeah. Okay. So is it sort of um, think of nothing and sort of not just think of it, but even embody it? Yes. Right. Um, and then by through that process and thinking and embodying nothing, you 
create everything? Something, in, in a sense, that everything is sort of revealed as, as, I don't know what, not created by the nothingness, but passes through it to come into existence. I mean, if the nothingness is like the Korah, if it's analogous to the Korah, then it's that by which everything comes to be. Yeah. And it's which it yeah. comes to be. Mm -hmm. um, but that, un so that if I could maybe make a transition to, to a psychological sense of what this be would be like, and I, that's what I tend to do with this, and I think of the Buddhist to some degree, yeah. and I've done some sitting meditation and so on. Um, uh, if it's just our raw attention and, and not falling into anything or pursuing any thoughts, but just pure attention, um, it can accept you know, uh, uh, attractive or repulsive ideas. It's just, they're all there. You know, the whole, the whole world of our experience, we're just aware of it. And yet we're usually so lost in the details of our experience that we, we lose our sense of the raw attention or the bare attention um, that gives rise to everything. I mean, our attention is basically it. Mm -hmm. Um but it's so it's so ingrained in everything we do, we never notice it. Um, like we're all sitting at these computers and trying to figure out well, what's he saying and what what's she thinking, what's he thinking, and but the first thing is we're just we're attentive to yeah. what's happening. Yeah, and, and that that's the raw attention, um, and it must be interlaced in all our activities. Um. That's what I was trying to get at. Uh, um, at the bottom of page 114, in order to avoid what I've often thought of as a kind of a dualistic approach to spiritual traditions, including Platonism, mm -hmm. is there's often so much emphasis on getting away from what's difficult and fragmentary and painful and aggressive or, you know, too lustful or too shriveled up. All of those polarities that we get into and we think if we could just get away from those things, we'd get to the right place. And I, I think that the approach is not to get away from those things, but to find that that wholeness or that emptiness is already present in all of those things. And so just to be in those things without separating it from that Korah is sort of a non-dualistic way. Of, of engaging things instead of separating the bad shit from the good place. Um, so I think that's what I was trying to get at at the bottom. Yet this isn't achieved by denying our activities, by overcoming them by a force of our will, for our choric passivity already underlies our activities. And I suggested that theurgy was the art of learning how to discover this choric passivity hidden in the midst of our attachments to the world because quite often in Platonism, in Buddhism in all lots of forms of spirituality the, the discipline is that we get overly attached to things in the world and we get messed up and fragmented and fixated and the goal is to sort of release yourself from that mm -hmm. and the question is how do you release yourself from it without falling into dualism if you just say no to it, then you've repressed it. And so how do you say yes to it without completely drowning in those attachments? And I think there's a parallel between what the later Platonists were doing in theurgy and what in India they did in Tantra, which yeah. is by saying yes to the things that, that screw us up or that might seem to draw us most away from the divine and find a way to be with the divine even in the things that would seem to separate us from it so there is no separation from the divine there's no place where the divine is not present and i know that might sound oh that would give license to anything that you would do mayhem you know bad things but i wasn't going there with it mm. but i was just thinking of of sort of like not splitting us so much well and what i hear in it too also is that you know by meditating on space the idea is to understand there is no such thing as uh, nothingness or emptiness, but there's only 
uh, everything that exists exists within with within consciousness or within existence, you know, and that that uh, if you're looking for I don't know God or yourself, you know, ultimately it's just that pure existence that doesn't have a form, that doesn't have a place, that doesn't have a, any kind of quality, but just like is isness, you know, that 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 is God and that's also you. Yeah, and I think that that's that's what I gravitate to also. The question is how to have the experience of that or a taste of it. Yeah. Um, and what difference does it make? You know? Oh, it makes a hell of a difference. No, it makes a hell of yeah. a difference. I mean, it might make it not a difference in terms of your, your salary at school or yeah. you know, how you're going to drive tomorrow. But yeah, yeah. I think it makes an existential difference. I just um, don't want to separate off that, that, that uh, divine presence that you described mm-hmm. from the messiness of the world that we're in every day. Yeah. How do I how do I see that in this? How do how do I bring the high into the low? How do I, you know, bring these worlds together without losing both? Um, because a lot of times, and I've done this in my own life, my spiritual discipline was finding ways to, uh, in a sense. Uh, make a distance between myself and the complexities of my life that are emotionally disturbing. And I could do that through meditation. I could sort of numb myself out to that. I could become indifferent to it. But I was basically shutting down a lot of the energetic embodied part of my life so that I could have this more peaceful, whole, you know, condition. And I think that's dualism. And I want, and I wanted to find a way to be able to say yes to my embodied um, highs and lows and complexities uh, and sustain a connection to that divine uh, presence that you were talking about. I, I still wonder about how to do that. And one of the reasons that I'm attracted to theurgy and to tantra is that I think that those traditions try to find a way of integrating the high with the low. That, that they don't separate God from the world or God from our bodies or, you know, that you can... I think Trungpa, this Tibetan Buddhist teacher, used to talk about finding the deities, these different deities, mm-hmm. in our different emotional states. Yeah, yeah. They would, he would try to find ways of transforming an emotional state of, say, rage or something and find the deity in it that you just need to sort of, like, Learn how to work with it instead of shutting them all down. Um, okay, I, I just talked on and on about not wanting to shut it all down, but I did that for years, and so um, that was part of my my discipline. Uh, from around the age of nineteen to about the age of twenty six, mm-hmm. I, I completely shut down everything and was just a yogi. Yeah, and and I you know only ate vegetarian food. I had no sex. I was you know basically completely living a celibate monastic sort of existence undercover you know as a sort of a scholar um and i you know i got pretty high doing that but at the end of the day it felt like i had sort of created uh i was living in a sort of a a wonderful little bubble but it was separated off from something else and there was a lack of authenticity i felt about it and so i kind of moved from a plotinian mindset of Neoplatonism to a more Iamblichian, which was integrating the body and the messiness of this world and all of the material diamonds and gods and impulses that percolate through us. And can they, I wanted to be able to somehow uh, shed light on those things mm-hmm. in, a, in a better way. I mean, so I'm just kind of being disclosive here about how I've sort of got to wanting to write about these things, but it was also an existential journey for me, too. If that makes any sense. And I've run into quite a few people in my generation who who followed a similar kind of path. Uh They got completely, you know, into that whole celibate yogi mode and, and denying everything in the body in order to achieve some sort of spiritual purity. And you can achieve something that way, but most of the guys that I know that live that way, and a woman too, they kind of eventually 
re-embrace the body. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that also in Tibetan Buddhism, um, and I think Hinduism, there is uh, a tradition of celibacy among the monks. But yeah. uh, especially, like, if you look at, first of all, where it's originating, it's originating with, uh, like, the Hindu, uh, you know, life uh, initiations and the, the various stages of life. Sure, and sure, it, it right, applies right. it applies specifically to young males from the point of puberty until they get married, you know? And I think it's about, like, developing self-control, you know, <laughs> in a really, like, uh, uh, time when it's important and, and, you know, you're making a right. lot of uh, life changes. But ultimately, like... Uh, um, they they wouldn't stay celibate forever, and to, even today, and I've seen uh, a lot of uh, Tibetan Buddhist um, uh, lamas. Like after you attain to a certain stage in your meditation, they go on to get married and have kids. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My my okay. my my uh, Tibetan Buddhist guru in the Sakya lineage is not um, celibate, and his lineage has been passed down from father to son for oh, you know, okay. a thousand years. And I th- think that's the same way with some of the other Tibetans, like Trungpa, for example, mm-hmm. and some of the others. Yeah. Well, then it starts getting really close to Judaism, too, that's also passed down like through a family lineage. Is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they encourage the having of children in the family. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah right, right. Talk about encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you hear about it or something from your family? It, well, no, no, I don't hear about it from my family, but it's a uh, um, uh, a stereotype about Jews because it's true that like there's a lot of pressure to have kids. <laughs> I bet, right? It's a mitzvah, bro. You got to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. What are you thinking uh, about, Isabel? Yeah, I wonder. Mm-hmm. Did you have any notes or any questions or anything that uh, that you wanted uh, to bring up? Well, a lot of this conversation and a lot of this essay reminded me a lot of a part from Nausea, Sartre's Nausea. Oh, yeah. I haven't read this in a long time. Okay. All right. Who's Nausea? Nausea. Nausea. Oh, Nausea from yeah. Uh, Sartre? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Tell me what, what you got from Nausea. I think when he, when the main character, whose name I forgot, um, is, he's looking at a chestnut tree. Okay. And he sort of realizes, or he starts, his whole world starts to almost collapse, but because he realizes that there's like this film of reality that's covering everything, and then through it, he sort of starts seeing the roots of the tree and from there he just keeps going and is able to see um, how everything is sort of related to each other mm. by the yeah. fact that everything yeah. exists. Uh-huh. And so it's sort of this, uh, <laughs> this radical contingency. This is a nausea. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, and then he sort of sees the interconnectedness of everything. Yeah, of everything True. through this, uh, what he calls a film, film of reality, uh-huh, uh-huh. sort of oozing throughout every object. And yep. um, he thinks of himself as being like superfluous or existing too much or everything exists too much in the world. And then he also starts feeling like he's disgusting and obscene and it's sort of taken to the point where it could lead you to absurdity in the sense that if you realize that then you sort of lose so much touch with reality or what is considered to be reality that everything then becomes absurd okay so there's disgust and a sense of absurdity both that happens and 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 he's also aware of this film of reality oozing through all things and, and and in the face of that sort of realization, he kind of uh, re- reflects on himself and he feels a sense of self-disgust. Mm-hmm. Okay. I wonder, why do you think that he has that? What what was your sense of where does that come from, do you think? Especially in light of the film of reality that's oozing through all things. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've never really known what to make of that in 
or I just remember reading that passage and yeah. being very shocked that it was in this text. I would like to look at that too. I, I was just trying to imagine maybe what you know, sensing a film of reality, kind of a universal presence, you could say, that that's oozing through all things, and then look, look at myself, and of course it's oozing through me too, you know, but I'm doing a lot of things extra beyond that presence that might just be so superfluous as to be um, inane, stupid, uh, extra, uh, and, and almost so superfluous as to almost be, I want to say disgusting, but but repulsive by comparison to this. Because my sense is that the film of reality is sort of a, a simple reality that that might al- almost be appreciated as mm-hmm. something kind of, there's a texture to it that's sort of good, you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. that we're, we're out of that. We've fallen out of that by, you know, hey, I can tell you what my, who I voted for last time. I mean, you know, we so jump out of the film of reality that's in us mm-hmm. rather than meeting people's reality that's in them from our reality that we're um, it was self-disgust. And what, what did it lead to? Also, the other uh, emotional. Uh, it's, a, it's like a sense of. Um, inane. It wasn't inane. It was. Um, absurdity. Absurdity. Right, right. Um and I'm thinking that in one sense, uh, maybe there's a rough analogy between the film of reality that oozes through all things and the Korah, which mm-hmm. is present in all things. And um, another, I think, interesting point he makes is that the this film of reality can only be felt. It can't ever be sort of understood it's, through intellect. It's, oh, my God. What's like, the same kind of deal then? Yeah, it's it can be felt, but it can't be conceptualized, mm-hmm. which is what basically, I mean, that's that's analogous to when Iambica says theurgical rights can be felt and you can enact them, but you can't conceptualize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That seems like an interesting segue, like that you can't conceptualize them um, to a question I had about like the this... Uh, uh, continues the metaphor of philosophy as of, as initiation of like yeah. engaging reading the Timaeus. This comes up in in your essay about uh, where you talk about how they um, the the Neoplatonists considered the study of the Timaeus as a uh, initiation in itself. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and and that that reminded me of. Uh, the symposium in Diatima, like her her talk at the end, where she. Uh, uh, um, she gives her her take on uh you know what love is uh but she couches it in this language that's very explicitly uh, like an, a a mystery inici- initiation and like in in the terms of moving towards the light and and uh uh, uh where like what the information that she's sharing with the reader is explicitly uh um characterized as a mystery initiation yes she does yes mm-hmm. it's beautiful right um, go ahead. We're going to say, say something well, about that. I was that? just going to say about that that you do mention Diatima near the end right. of uh, of your paper. And, yeah, okay. I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I think is really important, and I think it relates to the core of this Cora idea. It's on page one twenty four where I refer to that. Okay. Um, so that I I suggest at the bottom of one twenty three that. Um, we can transform ourselves into the Kora, which is the pure and divine matter that Iamblica says um, is used in some theurgic rites, and it's prior to creation. It's that sort of matrix of creation, which I follow up by saying we become creators of the world with the demiurge. In the symposium, Diatima reveals to Socrates that this is our deepest desire, that what Eros wants is not beauty, but to give birth in beauty, which is a very, I think, significant shift. So that what we really want is the act of being creative, to share in the act mm-hmm. of creation. And that by folk being attracted to beauty, that attraction to beauty opens us up in an ecstatic way, which allows this creativity to spontaneously come out of us. And that is sharing in the, the creativity that's always ongoing. 
At least that's that's the Neoplatonic spin on it, as I understand it. Well, it seems like something maybe uh, next time or in an upcoming time conversation, we might maybe we could look at Diatima and, and that passage in, in the symposium. I know this is one of right. the, this is one of the first books that Isabel and I read together. Uh, the uh, symposium? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my it's my favorite dialogue. I'm I just finished it with my class, and and I think if I could, as much as I love Diotima's speech and, and how she initiates Socrates into those mysteries of love, right. Alcibiades is even better. Oh, you know, he comes in and just blows them away by revealing Socrates as this, um, more than human kind of guy initiating them all into the mysteries of Eros and beauty. Um, and, uh, Oh, I just, love the dialogue so what, what what did you guys get a lot of mileage out of it and when did you do it together you did it together the, yeah the, we took a class at, at barnard this was like i don't know 2012 yeah the fall of 2012 um with how, how did it go who was the teacher and how, uh, how did they proceed it was with uh helena foley and it was sort of the intermediate ancient greek class so we were okay. going pretty slowly you went through it in greek mm-hmm yeah, yeah, okay. I I went through it in Greek too, and it's just it's rich all the way through, and it's worth all the time you spend on it. I loved it, but Alcibiades, what an outrageous dude, huh? Yeah, well, when he I, the one who barges in completely drunk, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know, Socrates is the only one who's able to make me feel shame, you know, and. Um, and then he reveals that he tried to seduce him, but Socrates wouldn't play the game. And, <laughs> you know, why would I exchange um, gold for bronze, pretty boy? You know, if you think I'm so hot, as you obviously do, uh, and you're that perceptive, why would I be stupid enough to exchange what I've got for you? You're just a pretty boy. You don't have what I have. I just think it was a fun, fun dialogue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the diatema part is... I think probably one of my favorite moments in oh absolutely in the dialogues just suddenly he starts speaking as a woman oh yes. Plato yeah and right Socrates. a woman is the one who reveals the greatest mysteries yeah mm-hmm. right no it's it is it's really a great dialogue yeah. all the way through um, I show my students also that um, Bernini's statue of Saint Teresa yeah where she's um, being penetrated by the arrows of God's love. And it's very much along the lines of the symposium and the erotic. um, She's in this ecstatic state of being just so completely turned on by arrows for the beauty of God. And it could almost read like a porno novel if you didn't know she was talking about God. Yeah. It's a very famous passage in her uh, diary, St. Teresa, (laughs) (laughs) where she talks about receiving or, you know, the the light of God in this really erotic language. It'd be fun to to pull it up and have a a read through it sometime soon, too. Yeah. (laughs) Really fun. I have actually never read her. I mean, like, unless you're really into Christianity, like, that's the only passage you'd really be into in the book. (laughs) Probably. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of these saints, she's pretty dusty dull in a lot of other things, too. Yeah, Uh, yeah. So here's the idea that, that, back to Isabel's point about... um, uh, uh, Sartre's nausea, Mm -hmm. that it's, that that this, um, this film is not accessible through concept, but by feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's actually a significant piece in this later Platonic tradition, that what Iamblichus calls gnosis, Uh uh, which is innate, is really not gnosis as as thinking or knowing, but it's gnosis more as a feeling, that that we have it, we're born with it, and that we're sort of uh, have an innate connection to it. And it's just a question of how can we release ourselves from the imbalances in our life, the things that disgust us, as Sartre would say, so that we can be more sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what they were after. And I don't know what Sartre was after. Maybe he was more sort of overwhelmed by how disgusting we normally are and how absurd we are. It's very French of him, yeah. I think it goes more in that direction. Yeah. So. <laughs> you wouldn't want to get too optimistic or you wouldn't be Sartre, right? No. Yeah. Okay, got it. 
Um, <laughs> but that, that what you were just saying also seems to me to point to, or or to imply that the point of reading um, the 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 Platonic dialogues uh, and, and engaging in Platonic philosophy isn't, you know, to you know, intellectually engage and just, like, have conversations and, and create, like, conceptual structures in your head. Right. But there's it's supposed to be, like, if you're taking that uh, um, metaphor of initiation seriously, that it's supposed to lead to some kind of experience that's not necessarily purely intellectual and, uh, um, uh, you know, an understanding in the, in the scientific sense. Absolutely. And, and of course, we still find it difficult to articulate what that is. Well. You know, but we can say, well, it's a feeling, and it is. But it's an intelligent feeling. But it would can't it be, be conceptually explained. Go ahead, Isabel. Would it be sort of like what you say that it's the initiation being maybe like being put in that state of aporia? Yeah. And sort of that's the moment of pregnancy almost from which yeah. you can create. Yeah. And how we create, it's hard to say how, but the aporia is being stripped of thinking that, you know, how it goes. And if you then become stripped down and you enter into that choric receptacle that's there, um, and you have this, I think it's Damascus who was somebody who talks about the, that it's a kind of an aching, like like a pregnant person has this aching to deliver, that that aching is in us to be creative of, of that quality, which is, I think, our deep um, impulse to want to participate in the divine, to incarnate it in our human lives. Um, at least that's what I think that they were interested in. And, uh, you know, I guess I would want to turn... You know, in terms of how we imagine the divine, we tend to think of it as in objective terms, like an it or an, an ontological entity. But ultimately, these Platonists didn't think of, of the divine as a being, but something that precedes being, and that somehow being comes out of it, but it's it's not even a being. You know, it's epikena usios, which is beyond being, as as... Plato writes in Republic Book 6, it's beyond being. And Plotinus says it's beyond being. They all thought it's beyond being. So there's something in us that's beyond all of this, that we have a, a trace of it in us. At least that's what they believe. And accessing that trace, uh, well, either, either we're sort of naive enough to think that there were some people who somehow did it according to their lights, with their poetry or their reflection or their Pythagorean number series or their rituals or their incantations, they were able to sort of put themselves up into sort of states where they weren't thinking, but they were experiencing something profound. All right, that's what I assume was going on. It's kind of hard to prove. Mm -hmm. But then there are also stories about these guys um, and women too that uh, did things that ordinary human and beings can't. And you could just start with Socrates in the symposium. What does Alcibiades say about him? He's walking around in the winter in bare feet. Doesn't bother him. He's barely wearing a, a coat at all, and they're all freezing their asses off. He sits outside for over 12 straight hours in a trance. The people around come and, you know, offer little things like, he, like who the fuck is this guy? What's going on? He's not an ordinary guy. And he walks around and gets lost and forgets where he's supposed to be going. Right. And he's, he's sort of taken, almost possessed by these ideas or presences or whatever. And he says you can't compare him to anyone living. So he's a little bit like Eros. Eros isn't a god and it's not human. It's in between, you know, an intermediary being in the symposium. And that's what Socrates is like. He's, he's more than human. He's sort of an initiatory sort of presence that awakens our eros for the divine, and he himself seems to embody it. And yeah, he gets all horny for all these beautiful guys, but then he doesn't, he doesn't express it in the physical way. He wants to use that, that erotic energy to, to take us into a deeper place. It's kind of mind-blowing, and it's almost would make a good puritanical Christian very squeamish. Oh. 
I mean, you know. Um, so yeah, what a guy! What an interesting. But well, he's more than human. Have, know, I also, like... have I mentioned yet that the Sufis consider Socrates to be a prophet? Uh, in the alongside, you know, Jesus and Moses and Muhammad, like they consider Socrates to have been uh, a prophet, and it's a, apparently an idea that's so widespread in the contemporary yeah. Islamic world that like people just take it for granted, you know. Yeah, I've and I've heard that they take Empedocles as as a divine um, teacher as well, and that that so the Sufis picked up on a lot of these traditions and yeah. incorporated. I guess what they would call certain practices. The thing I like about the Sufis is that there does seem to be a lot of practice yeah. that they emphasize along with these. They say, how would I put it? Their intellectualizing always remained inebriated. Whereas the intellectualizing in some of the Western traditions or the Christian ones could get increasingly dried up. But it seems like the Sufis stayed kind of drunk with with their uh, reflections. A lot of them did anyway. Strikes me. I mean, I when I read like the trial of Socrates and he talks about um, mm. him delivering like a message from his daimon, it sounds yeah. you know in that context it sounds very prophetic. Where he's saying like they tell me what to say and I say it, and if I didn't, I, I would be in a lot of trouble. And he wasn't scared to die, you know. He's like, let's let's do this, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. He was not an ordinary dude. Yeah, I read the Apology too in my Greek class, and and that was fun to read as well. Mm-hmm. That and symposium, and then we also did part of the um, Phaedrus, uh, oh. that beginning of the Phaedrus where he talks about uh, erotic madness and you know what what is the better kind of friend or lover to have? It's the one who who's carried away by this erotic madness, which reminds us of the absolute beauty that we saw when we were with the forms and then we see a person that awakens that in us then we almost see them as if they're a god or a goddess because they awaken our recollection of the absolute beauty (laughs) 